You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Weatherman. Once again, everybody, welcome to this latest edition of Gun on One, the podcast. It is brought to you by Patterson Square Garden. I'm Derek Gunn. Well, the other night, the 76ers did what we all expected them to do. They bounced back. They take care of business. Series tied at one and one. But the big question, are they in control of the series? Because there's a lot of Sixers fans out there that are still a little bit nervous about these Atlanta Hawks. So to calm your minds and to put you at ease, I brought in a man who knows what he's talking about. He is Derek Bodner, senior writer for The Athletic, and of course he covers the 76ers. Check him out also on a Sixers Beat podcast. DB, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well. I'm not entirely sure if I am the right person to calm people's nerves, though, since I am worried about everything constantly, but I am I am happy to be here. All right, first question I have to ask you is, uh, after the game the other night, what is the one thing that stood out to you about the difference between game one and game two? Yeah, well, I mean, clearly how they defended Trey Young was completely different. You know, in terms of possessions in game one, Danny Green defended Trey Young on about 55% of Trey Young's possessions. Uh, in game two, Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel defended him for, I think, about 75% of the time. So it was a complete shift in how the Sixers defended him, not only who, but also then the schemes they used to defend him. That was takeaway number one. And the other takeaway is just that Atlanta has absolutely no prayer defending Joel Embiid. I mean, Joel Embiid is averaging 39.5 points per game uh, in like 36 minutes. Uh, I think he's shooting like 55% from the field. They have had no answer for him, whether they try to go one-on-one with Clint Capella, whether they try to double t- send double teams his way. Nothing has bothered Joel at all. And quite frankly, if I look at those two as being sort of like the defining keys of the series, I think the Sixers have better answers for Trey Young than Atlanta has for Joel Embiid. So I guess if you're looking for that optimistic things will be okay, that is where I would start. I couldn't agree with you more, but why does the national national media 
think the Atlanta Hawks are so much better than the 76ers. That's kind of mind-boggling when you consider the Sixers have been number one seed in the East for most of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, I think there's a bunch of reasons. I think there's always been a little bit of skepticism around the Sixers and around Joel Embiid and especially Ben Simmons in the playoffs. Uh, And I think they have to sort of prove that they can get out of the second round before people trust them to, which is weird because Atlanta's never won anything in the playoffs either, um, but they are new. So I guess there's not as much uncertainty there, or at least not as much skepticism there. But I think also, um, you know, Atlanta ended the season real strong. Uh, they had, I think they went like 27-11 over the, since uh, March 1st. They had pretty much tied with the Sixers for the best record in the Eastern Conference over that span. Um, they have been pretty much unbeatable at home. And also their style of play just seems to fit a little more cleanly in playoff basketball. You know, we haven't seen teams like the Sixers built with a dominant big man, built with spacing concerns and not a whole lot of perimeter shooting. We haven't seen those kind of archetypes win in the playoffs in quite a while. So I think there's just some skepticism around there. But, you know, by and large, I think it's, um, you know, I think the Sixers should be the favorite. I think I picked them mm-hmm. in. If, if you're going to tell me Embiid is healthy, I picked them in five. I don't think it's going to be five anymore. I think it'll probably right. be six, but I think the Sixers should still be the favorites to win this. Here's the one thing that really concerns me about this matchup. Okay, the Atlanta Hawks came in here in game one. They shocked the world. They pull off the win. Sixers make a fast and furious rally. It falls short. Game number two, Sixers come out, put their foot on Atlanta's throat early. Uh, they were up 23-6 at one point. They built an 18-point lead. All of a sudden, you look up. Atlanta's within two by halftime, and Atlanta has a, a small lead in the third quarter before the Sixers went on that 14-0 run. So we always talk about mor- morale wins. Uh, obviously, they don't count into one loss standings, but this young Atlanta Hawks team that nobody gave a prayer beating the 76ers, I, I know they left this town thinking, you know what? We can hang with this team. Now they have to come to our domain in front of our fans, and we play a different, as you just mentioned, we play a different style of ball. I, I think the psychological warfare here is you want to take a young team's mindset that they can even come close to winning out, but I don't know if the Sixers did that. No, and I, quite frankly, I don't think that they will. I think Trey Young, so much of their personality is derived from Trey Young, and Trey Young has that swagger and that confidence. I don't expect this team to just fold. I don't expect them to, yep. I don't expect the moment to be too big for them, um, which again is a little weird because this is their first time going through it, but I do think they are going to stay in there. And also they're a team, they're not a good defensive team, but they play hard and they play with effort. And again, it's not, it seems somewhat contradictory because we associate defense so much with effort, but I do think they are going to give them your all and they're going to have to um, really put them, put, put them away hot, quickly here in Atlanta. Um, and Atlanta, they've, oh, again, over that stretch from, um, from March 1st, they're 17 and two at home. They have been unbeatable at home. So it's going to be a tough test for the Sixers. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately when all is said and done, the Sixers are a more well-rounded team. Uh, I think they showed that they're really outside of the first half of game one. It's tough that they gave that away. They gave home court advantage away in a way that felt somewhat preventable. Uh, you know, I thought a lot of that was self-inflicted that first half of game one. Uh, but I do think I, with if, if you're going to tell me Joel Embiid's going to be healthy and Joel Embiid's going to be playing at this level, it would be tough for me to see a Sixers lose. Okay, so if Atlanta wins game three and regain the series edge, what's your mindset from that point? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think as long as the Sixers win one of these two in Atlanta, they're in a decent spot. Um, it's A lot of it's going to come down to how that plays out. Uh, you know, the first half of game one was so discouraging because not only did Trey Young score, 
but he generated a lot of wide open looks. And that's what Atlanta really needs. They have a lot of really good off ball perimeter shooters who are also then good enough where they can make decisions, attack and closeouts decisions when they get sort of like a four on three and they get um, an odd man rush sort of where they can play um, and create for each other. Like they're not almost nobody outside of trailing is going to break you down off the dribble, but if they get a driving lane, they can make good decisions with the ball. And with the way the Sixers allowed Trey Young to get in the middle there and create kickout passes, um, you know, that really let their offense kick into high gear. So a lot of it depends on if they lose game three, why is it? Is it just they have an off shooting night? Okay, you can you can come back from an off shooting night. But if Atlanta finds a way to attack their defense and create sort of like that havoc of game one, that would change my outlook a little bit. Um, but I think as long as they get one of these two in Atlanta, yeah. they're in a pretty good spot. I don't know about you, but I need more from the 76ers bench. Oh, yeah. I, I need I need more consistency. I mean, if we're relying on Shake Milton to be that guy, uh, I, I'm a I'm a little nervous. You, you look at Atlanta's bench. You know Atlanta's going to give you X amount of points. I mean, they yeah. had two guys combined for 40 points the other night. The 76ers bench. I'm a, it, it's like. It's like it's not just a job; it's an adventure. You don't know who's going to step up yeah. and who's not going to step up, man. Well, that's that's part of like Doc Rivers has has kept a 10, 11 man rotation, and that's that's not typical in the playoffs. I think part of it is just because he doesn't know which of his you know you get you get there with Dwight. All right, he's going to come off the bench. George Hill's going to come off the bench. Matisse Thybulle is going to come off the bench. Once you get past that, he doesn't know what he can expect out of pretty much anyone. And some nights, you know, in in that first round against Washington. Um, Tyrese Maxey was playing pretty well. Now Tyrese is struggling a little bit. Shake Milton in that first round was completely almost unplayable. Now he lifted you to a game two victory. I think part of the reason he goes to a deeper 10, 11 man rotation is just see, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is, you know, Shake's night. And he drains a really a prayer three at the end of a shot clock. And that kickstarted the Sixers in that third quarter and fourth quarter the other night. Whereas if he had just kept him off, you know, glued to the bench, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Um, so I think part of it is because a lot of these guards are young. They're inexperienced. They're not something I think Doc fully believes he can rely on. So let's just cycle through them and, and see what they can get. But you're right. Up until Shake Milton went supernova there in the third and fourth quarter, this bench was a huge problem. It was a huge problem in game one. You know, Part of the reason six were down so much is the bench units, uh, Atlanta went on a 17-0 run there in the late first, early second, put them in a huge hole, which they tried to claw out of but couldn't. And then in, in game two, I mean, they were out, the bench was outscored 32-0 in the first half by Atlanta's bench. It's a, it's a huge concern. I don't necessarily think it's going to magically be solved, but hopefully you get one, one or two more surprise performances from Tyrese Maxey, from Shake Milton, to try to overcome some of that. Do you honestly think when we're talking about playoff basketball, Doc should shorten up his bench? In typical years, yes. Uh, I yeah. would typically say an eight, nine man rotation is best. Get people into roles that they're comfortable with. Um, but I think this is such a uncertain bench that I understand why he wants to. I mean, like I said, if, if he would have shortened that, you probably would have, after the first round, had Shake Milton out of the rotation and you wouldn't have had a chance for him to come in there and give you what he did. So it's if he had four people he could rely on night in, night out, I think he probably would. But I don't think he feel like he does. You know, I'm starting to wonder, is Joel Embiid really hurt? I mean, you got a bum knee and you're scoring 39 and 40 points a yeah. night. What have you seen from Joel? Uh, you know, when I watch the game, I'm watching it more from a fan perspective. Have you been looking at the little the little nuances maybe that may be grimacing sometimes when he's heading down to court? Is he favoring the knee in any way, shape, or form, things like that? Yeah, he doesn't really seem like he's favoring it too heavily. Certainly, right. you don't see a lot of grimacing. Uh, I think what you saw, though, like at times, and especially in game one, I think maybe Doc came out and he didn't know exactly what he could get out of Joel. 
I think where the biggest concern wouldn't be isn't offensively because most of his moves are not, you know, quick change of direction type things. It's defensively when he's asked to defend, you know, a Trey Young, Clint Capella pick and roll out in space, 15 feet away from the basket. Um, I think in game one, he was dropping back off of that pick and roll. So he had to cover less ground, didn't have to move as much on the perimeter. I think part of that was maybe Doc was just unsure how that knee would react to that kind of movement. Uh, I thought he got a little more aggressive there in game two and, and at times in game three. But it's a combination of looking at that and is he able to change directions? And also just how does it respond to the wear and tear? Um, is this something where it's going to, you know, you get five, six games deep into a playoff and the swelling kicks up and he doesn't have the days off. They're pretty lucky here because between game two and three, they have two days off. And then between three and four, they have another two days off. But when you start getting into, you know, game day, off day, game day, off day, does that knee start swelling? That's where I really start looking. Okay, well, are they getting more conservative in their pick and roll coverage? Is he struggling to change direction? Is he struggling defensively more than he typically does? Mm-hmm. I think that's where you would see the, um, you know, the effects of the the injury. You know, people have been all over Ben Simmons all season long for a variety of reasons. Yeah. I, I get it. You know, when the guy's game is on, he's very creative going to the basket, creative addition to ball. But people want him to be this prolific scorer. And I believe the other night, correct me if I'm wrong, he had four points. Yeah. But he was such a defensive presence. Um Will people ever get off Ben Simmons? Ben Simmons is not going to yeah. be this guy who's going to be hoisting 25-foot shots and putting up 30 points a night. No, he's not. Um, he's And he's never going to be that guy. Um, no. You know, I think there's, with every debate like this, um, and people seem very far entrenched on one side of Ben Simmons' debate or the other, I think there's always a little bit of truth in both sides. Like, there are times, and it's, we, I think we saw that at times in the um, Wizards series, where Ben will have a mismatch. And he will have a shorter defender on him. Howell Neto, Ish Smith, even Bradley Beal in a previous series. And he'll let them get away with that because he's just not a confident half-court scorer. Um, and when he does punish those, he creates more for his teammates. He creates more in half-court. The Sixers are tougher to defend. On the other hand, he is an absolutely elite defender. He just came in second in Defensive Player of the Year, and it was, it was well-deserved. Um, he gives them something that pretty much no other team in it has. He can very credibly defend everyone from... Trey Young to Jason Tatum. And there is pretty much nobody else in the league who can do that. You know, I think a lot of times when we talk about players buying in, we have to convince them, encourage them to give effort defensively. You've never had to do that with Ben Simmons. Um, I think we part of, of this debate is we're just not used to having players who don't want to shoot. So we don't really know how to like react to it. Um, but there is also some very like he's shooting like 35% from the free throw line in this series. Right. Like That is not good enough. And if you want to tell no. me, that you've watched him play over the last four years and he hasn't made enough growth, forget pulling up off the dribble, forget even a three-point shot. His inability to go to the free throw line confidently impacts the Sixers. So there's truth on, I think, all sides of it. Um, you know, I think you can be discouraged by the fact that you pretty much can't give him the basketball in the final two minutes of the game because he's going to get fouled, uh, while also acknowledging that he is a fantastic defender. Um, you know, he, he's, he's a weird spot. On the one hand, he is one of the key reasons why the Sixers are a legitimate threat to go to the NBA Finals. On the other hand, if he had had more offensive development over the last four years, that would be the easiest way the Sixers would have to become a title favorite and an actual NBA champion. So there's, I think you can appreciate Ben Simmons and also be a little bit frustrated by his lack of development. Going, going back to game two, he took three shots, four points. They didn't need him to take any more because Atlanta is so bad defensively because Joel Embiid has so many mismatches because Tobias Harris was able to get what he wanted in the half court in the first half. And because Shake Milton went off, you didn't need Ben to 
force the action. And quite frankly, if Ben would have taken shots away from Joel Embiid or Tobias Harris, it probably would have resulted in fewer points. So I think there's a, a there are times when I think his passiveness and his lack of confidence and diversity will hurt the Sixers. I do not think it was um, in game two. Do you think his issues at the free throw line are mental or mechanical? Both. Both. Okay. Um, okay. His mechanics are something you would never teach a kid to shoot, for sure. Uh, he's never had good touch. He can make it work at times, or he'll, I mean, first half of the season, he was shooting like 65 plus percent from the free throw line. You'll, you'll take that. It's not perfect, but you'll take it. Um, but the problem is, his mechanics, I think, will prevent him from being a great free throw shooter. And because of that, he's always going to be have these down periods where he's struggling. And when he does struggle, it very much becomes a mental, um, you know, where he just doesn't have confidence in it. Uh, with rightfully so, I mean, he's a bad free throw shooter. But the the lack of confidence then definitely snowballs the uh, his success rate for sure. See, you're one of the guys you get to to look at uh, Ben Simmons when you guys talk to him in the media, even if even if if, if it's by virtual. Um, what do you get? What, what kind of feeling do you get in terms of his body language? Because he's constantly asked about the negative criticism. Now, if I'm the organization, I'm almost at a point. Maybe I don't let Ben Simmons come to the podium and talk to the media anymore. I know you don't want to hear that, you yeah. know. Uh, but you know, to shield him away from this stuff, he, he he constantly hears this stuff. You hear it in the stands, and of course, being in Philadelphia, it is a very critical market. Let's face it. Yeah. Um. You know, I think he, I think the the conversation does bother him at times because I think he feels like a lot of people don't appreciate what he does bring. And I think there are people who don't appreciate what he does bring. Um, but I think deep down, he also knows that he's not confident in his jump shot. He's not confident in his free throw. Um, so I think deep down, he probably understands where it's coming from. Like I said, I think he probably thinks that a lot of people focus on it too much. But I don't think he's completely oblivious to the fact that he needs to improve as a shooter. And quite frankly, I've seen him shoot a lot and work on shot a lot. I sometimes question the people he has around him and, and the guidance he's getting in that regard. I question the fact that he has not been willing to completely overall the shooting form and wonder if that's holding back his progress a little bit. But I think he has put in the work. I think he's identified it as something that would be helpful for him to get. He's just he's never had confidence in that shot. He still doesn't have confidence in that shot. Uh, and I don't know if, quite frankly, it's ever going to get here. Yeah. Um, but I think you recognize it to some degree as something to work on. Give me one or two players that you feel need to step up even more. So outside of Simmons, outside of Joel, they really need to step up to be significant contributors to this team. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've already had, I mean, Tobias and Seth are playing very good basketball right now. So they've already stepped up. I'm not sure how much you can realis- realistically expect them to step up more. Uh, you know, I think you'd clearly look at Danny Green and not only defensively in the way he struggled, but, you know, Atlanta is going to try to hide Trey Young defensively on Danny Green, on Matisse Thibel. He's let him get away with that way too much. They need to find a way to run Danny Green off ball, force Trey to go through screens, maybe switch better offensive players onto Trey Young, force Atlanta to switch, uh, and make him work more. And I think that would help. And then anyone on the bench, like literally anyone on the bench, it, whether that's Furkan Korkmaz shooting threes, Tyrese Maxey off the dribble, Shake Belton creating shots. Uh, they need one of those three specifically to step up and, and be able, because Doc Rivers is pretty entrenched in his rotation. He likes to keep his starters together. He likes to then go to the bench lineup where he will have four or even five bench players on the floor at the same time. If they're going to do that, one of those two young guards has got to be going well and has got to be creating offense. Otherwise, they just don't have the firepower 
to keep the team afloat. So it, it's it's one of those two. And I mean, Shake Milton has struggled for a long time. Tyrese Maxey was playing well for a while there, but has struggled these last two games. They need one yep. of those two to step up for sure. All right. The, the, the defensive concept they implemented to, to control Trey Young worked. Uh, Simmons primarily on him. They use what they call basically a pick and roll defense on him. Um, do you continue to use that? Because you know now Atlanta's going to counter. So it's like counter counterpoint in terms of how they try to free up Trey Young. If you're Doc Rivers, do you continue that concept on them until they force you out of it and try something different? Yeah, I think you do. And more specifically, I think Doc definitely will. Uh, Doc likes okay. to stick with what has worked so far and, and, and wait until, um, you know, they run you out of it. And they they had a lot of success um, defending the, the double drag screen there on the perimeter with Trey Young. They willingly switched more than it did in game one rather than trying to go through screens. Um, and when they do go through screens, Ben Simmons is much better at, at navigating through screens than Danny Green is. Um, but yeah, I think they're going to switch. Uh, you're going to see, I think at times, you know, Trey Young matched up onto, or, or Tobias Harris matched up onto Trey Young. And Trey Young, I think at times in game two settled um, for sort of like long step back contested jumpers, which I think if he takes him off the dribble and, and gets in the paint a little more, which he can do against Tobias, Sixers might have to change a little bit there. But yeah, I think they're going to keep a largely the same or similar scheme defending Trey Young uh, and see if, if that can work for, quite frankly, I think they played better defensively game two for sure. I also think Trey Young was just a little less engaged, a little less. He didn't force the action quite as much. He settled a little bit more. He 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 was off ball a little bit more. And Trey Young is not a great off ball player. So if he's going to sort of like concede and, and get the ball out of his hands, that helps. Um, I think Trey Young is going to be better. It will be interesting how they react, but I think they'll come out with a very similar base scheme against him. Um, as we were talking about earlier, um, basically Joel Embiid is unstoppable when he's healthy and his game is on. He is unstoppable. Um, and, but yet he didn't win the MVP award. Yeah. Uh, is that based solely on games played? Would you Would you say? I mean, I think or it's, it's I think it's significantly on games played for sure. Okay. Uh, I mean, Jokic played what twenty more games than Joel? Something yep. in that range. Seven, was, he played seventy two. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot, um, and that's a lot of minutes. And Denver was a very good team, and Jokic was a, he played at an MVP caliber level too. And a lot of these times, you'll have um, you know if Joel Embiid was so far and away the best player, and in terms of when they were on the court, I would have voted for Joel. Um, but I think Jokic was close enough that when you start factoring in the games played, I don't really have a big problem with it. If I'm being honest, I think Joel Embiid. You know, the way I always look at it is when you're building a team, you need somebody capable of playing at this level, playing at an MVP best in the world level. I think the Sixers got that. And so from my perspective, in terms of building a team, whether or not, you know, how a voter in Phoenix measured games played, it's not in terms of their vote. It, to me, it's not really all that concerning or relevant. But the fact that you have this guy that can play at this level is is very important. It puts them in a, a chance where they can win the Eastern Conference. Um, I get why people voted for Jokic. I do. I think Jokic had a fantastic season. And I think there were two, even three, when you start getting into Steph Curry, players who deserved it, only one can win it. Um, it would you have liked, liked to see your hometown guy get it? Absolutely. But I also don't, as a, if I remove myself from the uh, right. situation, I don't have a big problem with it either. Were you shocked that Ben Simmons didn't win the uh, Defensive Player of the Year award? No, uh, I mean, Rudy no? Gobert is a general generational okay. defender. Um, and I, okay. I sort of subscribe to the belief that when you are uh, a big man, a center, a rim protector, you can make a bigger impact on defense than um, a wing player, 
even and Ben Simmons is the best version of a wing defender in that he can, you know, he can do pretty much everything in terms of defending one through four. He can switch anything. He can rebound. He can he's force turnovers. He can lock up a man pretty much of any archetype. Um, ben is the best version of a perimeter defender, but you still I'd when you have the ability to alter shots at the rim like Rudy Gobert is, teams can base their entire scheme around that. You can impact more shots. Um, it's it's almost unfair. Like there almost should be a best perimeter defender and best interior defender because when you have a jet generational and elite rim protector, they just make a bigger impact on a team's defense than a perimeter defender does. And it doesn't come down to skill or effort or execution. It's just when you can alter shots at the rim like that, I think you make a real huge impact. So I don't, I don't you, have a problem with that. I would have voted for Gobert as well, quite frankly. You know, I, I, I think, and I'm, I'm just being facetious. I, I just think outsiders hate Philadelphia. What is this? Everybody hates Philadelphia. They don't want to give Philadelphia their props. They don't want to give Philadelphia players their props. What is it, DB? Why does everybody hate Philadelphia? I mean, you ended up with three players getting Defensive Player of the Year votes because not only did Ben Simmons get votes. Uh, Joel Embiid got a vote and or votes and Matisse Thibel actually got a vote too. He got a third place vote. Um, so I, I think people are giving Sixers credit. They're just not, <laughs> you're, you're, you came runner up twice. I get it. It, it, it stinks, but uh, I don't, I don't have too big of an issue with it. Doc Rivers uh, doesn't even get a sniff at coach of the year. Should he have had? I mean, he did a good job, but again, when you look at what's going on in Phoenix and Monty, like they've been the story. And again, these are awards that you can only, only one person can win. Uh, and you look at that turnaround in Phoenix, it would be tough for me to to have voted for Doc in this one, too. That doesn't mean it, he didn't do a very good job. That doesn't mean Ben's not a fantastic defender. That doesn't mean Joel Embiid's not an MVP caliber player. Again, these awards just come down to there's one award. It is the MVP or the defensive player of the year, not not top three. Um, they will They will get there. I mean, look, Ben and Joel are going to make all NBA teams, all defensive teams. You can probably throw Matisse in there, too. I think he's probably going to make it. Um, they will get their awards. It's just not going to be the top spot. All right, let's look at the bigger scheme of things here. You know, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people have picked the Sixers to get to the finals. Uh, Brooklyn is playing out of their minds right now. Milwaukee is in shambles. Yeah. Um, a- Atlanta has shocked people the way they've been able to go toe-to-toe with the 76ers through two games. Um, if the Sixers got bounced in the second round or the next round and don't make it all the way to the finals, what do you think they're going to do with this roster? Yeah. Will they overhaul it? Will they tweak it just a little bit? Give me your perspective. Well, I think I think those two theoreticals are pretty different. Uh, losing in the second round to the Hawks would be a pretty massive disappointment. Losing to the Nets in the conference finals, I think a lot of people would understand that. Like That is a, a fantastic team. Um, they are impossible to stop. The way that they have dismantled the, uh, the Bucks so far has been really impressive. So if you go out there and you lose in six games of that team, I don't think you're going to see, like, I don't think people are going to panic quite as much. Certainly not not fans. Um, well, certainly not the, the front office, too. You know, if you lose the Hawks, again, part of it comes down to why. Um, like, what was what caused you to lose? But I think there would be a lot more openness. And quite frankly, I think Daryl Morey is always going to be open to change. Like, I don't think this is a guy... If you look at his track record in Houston, I don't think this is a guy who's going to say, all right, well, we've got a pretty good team. I'm just going to let them keep developing together. Uh, I think he is going to look for and be aggressive towards finding ways to improve the team. I think a lot of that's going to come down to improving top-level talent. Like, I don't think it's a complete shocker that he went for James Harden at the trade deadline or before the trade deadline when Harden worked his way out. Like, anytime there is a superstar caliber player coming up, 
I th- and whether that might be Dame Lillard, who we'll see whether or not he finally gets frustrated in Portland or somebody of that ilk. I think Daryl Morey is always going to be aggressive, and that's going to be true whether they lose in the second round of the conference final. So I'm not sure it's going to change their outlook too much, quite frankly, because I think Daryl's always going to be focused on on taking those big swings. Um, I don't think he's going to be complacent regardless. When you look at teams that, that make changes, not just in the NBA, but across the board in sports, sometimes it works out. Sometimes you can outthink yourself to the point where you have all that you, the pieces you you think you need. And all of a sudden, it's not as good as what you had hoped yeah. it would be. So it's a fine line between and, how and Darryl, much do we change? Daryl will know? tell you that when he pursued Russell Westbrook in, in Houston. Yes, yeah. yes. You know, so it's it's a fine line between how much do you you affect the chemistry that has been built to get to this far uh, to make the change that wow it looks good on paper, but man, if it doesn't work out. We're going to be left eating a lot of crow next year. Yeah, uh, but I think Daryl's confident enough in his place in the league and confident enough with his place in the organization where he is going to take chances, I think. Um, I don't think he's too worried about looking like he ate crow. Um, we'll see. We'll see. But I think, they will, I think they will be aggressive if the opportunity is out there. And a lot of this comes down to, you know, we talk about James Harden. Well, James Harden doesn't come available all the time. Um, Dame Lillard is, there's certainly no guarantee he is going to become available. That's just the hypothetical we're throwing out there. So some of it will come down to opportunity. Uh, but if the opportunity is there, I think whether or not they lose in the second round or the conference finals, I think there will be probably pretty aggressive. I think the only way you really change that is if you make the finals, if you win a finals, then there might be a little inertia to change. But otherwise, I think, I think there's going to be pretty aggressive if the opportunity is there. Um, and again, aggressive and desperate are different. And I think that's where you get into the distinction. I think he'll be aggressive. As we sit here right now, are you 100% confident the Sixers get by the Atlanta Hawks? Oh, not 100%. Um, 99.9? 98? 97? 65, maybe? 65? That's not comforting. I mean, that's that's 2 to 1. That's 2 to 1. Again, I'm, I'm... constantly concerned, I guess, is the way that I would describe my uh, mentality on pretty much everything in life, which explains a lot about me. Um, no, I probably would, coming into the series, I probably would have said, if you told yeah. me Joel Embiid was going to play, I probably would have said 80, 85%. Okay. Losing game one when you had that incredible performance from Embiid on your home floor, that concerns me a little bit. But like I said, I think a lot of those were self-inflicted problems. I think they should be able to correct them. I think they're a better team. So like 65, maybe you can talk me into 70%. I think okay. they have a pretty good chance, but they, I mean, Atlanta's a real good home team. So they have, they have to steal one out of two down there. Hey, by the way, I, I think you have one of the best first names you could possibly I, have. Look, I don't I'm, know why. I, I, I think I'm partial to that. I, I don't know why. I think but. you might spell yours a little bit incorrectly. No, 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 that's no, okay. Was, that's okay. You, you, beat me, you beat me to the punch. I was going to say, the only problem is you spelled it the wrong way. That's all. That's because I, <laughs> to I'm be probably, fair, it wasn't my uh, decision. It wasn't my decision. So. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm much older than you, so I, I had it first. So I think everybody else has messed it up. So, But hey, that's man. Fair. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Gun on Wonder Podcast. Um, you know, I love reading your stuff. I love listening to you on different platforms. And hopefully we can get you on again uh, during the course of this, this this series or during the summer as we watch and see if the Sixers make uh, some changes heading into next season. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Anytime. All right. He is the one and only Derek Bodner, senior writer for The Athletic. Also, listen to the podcast Sixers Beat. Uh, I love his stuff. I love his work. Hey, man, enjoy the rest of your day. And go 76ers! Same to you.
Oh, by the way, also make sure you follow Derek at uh, on Twitter uh, at Derek Bodner NBA at Derek Bodner NBA. All right, my brother, you be good. Same to you. All right, that's going to wrap up uh, this latest edition of Gun on One, the podcast brought to you by Patterson Square Garden. Uh, for Derek Bodner, I'm Derek Gunn. As I tell you each and every week, continue to stay blessed, but more importantly, bless each and every person you encounter. Until next time, so long, everybody. of D-Gun Enterprises in Patterson Square Garden. Alvin Shabazian and Wes Pendleton are the executive producers on behalf of Patterson Square Garden. Lead producer is Derek Gunn. Associate producer is John McNeil. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Alvin Shabazian. Original music by Weatherman. For more information about the podcast, visit gunonone.com. And please, don't forget to subscribe and give us a positive rating if you're feeling the show. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.